Welcome to Meekum Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. It's the show geared toward keeping you up to speed with the latest auto news, event coverage, and expert industry insight. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Avery and John Craman. Hey, and welcome to another On The Move. We're so glad you've joined us today. My name is Matt Avery. I'm executive producer of The Transmission. And joining me, as always, is co-host John Craman, lead TV commentator for Mecham Auctions on NBCSN. John, today in segment two, we'll be checking in with a friend of the show, TV personality Rachel DeBarros, best known for her time as one of the hosts on the very popular show All Girls Garage. And we'll be hearing what she has been up to and some exciting projects that she has in the works. And then in segment three, you and I will be taking some time for a Mecham year in review. 2020 is winding down very quickly and we're going to be taking some time today to look back at the past 12 months and the different live events that Mecham has held and some of the factors that contributed to each of their success. That is right, Matt. And uh, we're going to uh, also do a little recap of the recently completed, I just walked in the door, of the Houston auction, which was the 13th and final auction of 2020. So many great events. And John, it appears that things might be slowing down for the Meekum Auctions team, but as you know, it is far from it as everyone is already hard at work gearing up for our first event of 2021, which of course is our return to Kissimmee, Florida for the world's largest collector car auction. We'll be down there January 7th through the 16th, 10 full days of auction action. And before the show, John, you and I were talking about how we're both very excited to be down there because it allows not only us, but really the rest of the collector car hobby and industry a chance to get a finger on the pulse of what's in store for the year ahead. Well, and that is a good point, Matt, because as we know, this landmark auction, Mecham starts out with their best and their biggest, and we know that the eyes of the collector car world are on that auction as an indicator of what the rest of the year is going to be like. So going to be a lot of attention paid to that great auction this year as well. John, it is the start of a new month, meaning that there is a brand new copy of the Mecham magazine available on virtual newsstands. You can find it at Mecham.com. John, give us some insight into your column this month. What were you writing about? Well, I have an interesting uh, topic. It is called The Other Z Car. This is my monthly column at the Red Line. And what I'm talking about is a little bit of historical look at the 1970 through 1978 Datsun Z cars. That would be the 240Z, the one-year-only 260Z, and then the 280Z, which ended in 1978. What about you? You've got a column also popping. I sure do, John. Um, In my free revs column, I dive deeper into something you and I discussed on the show a couple weeks ago, and that's Ram's 75th anniversary power wagon that's going to be available for the 2021 model year. So in my column, I was able to talk a little bit more about the legacy of the truck, as well as include just some great archival images that Dodge had showing some of these military vehicles from the 1940s that really influenced the design and durability of the power wagon. Yeah, power wagon has always been such a uh, important nameplate uh, and it's it's amazing all these years the uh, the Mopar gang has been able to keep the prestige I guess uh, of that nameplate up in the forefront and boy that is a beautiful truck 
I'll agree. I'm, the Power Wagon has always been one of my favorites. It's just got such an imposing look to it. There's no mistaking them. And for the special edition to get some additional highlights, calling it out, and uh, some optional equipment, to me, that's the perfect way for Ram to celebrate the legacy of a truck that hasn't undergone significant changes uh, from its debut, you know, in terms of intent, that first version, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, really was designed to support people that work in very difficult circumstances in the great outdoors. And it's just so cool that this new version really supports that message. It's designed to be enjoyed uh, or to to work hard when the pavement ends. So I can't wait to see these in person and uh, definitely can't wait to drive them. Now, John, changing gears, let's talk about electric things going on there. You've got some news about the latest from Cadillac. Yeah, interesting news, uh, Matt. Nothing uh, with any product content, but more about uh, the transition to Cadillac being an all-electric nameplate down the road. There's about 880 Cadillac dealers and about 150 of those dealers. It looks like they're going to be opting out of continuing along with the Cadillac nameplate. Uh, they're going to be offered a buyout from GM anywhere from $300,000 to a million dollars, depending on their size, should they decide not to spend the money on the upgrades for the all-electric fleet that is coming. Uh, things like charging stations, repair hardware, and training. Uh, interesting that a pretty, pretty high percentage of these Cadillac dealers are just not seeing that their own particular individual market, uh, is going to be embracing a full electric fleet. Now that we think that, oh, everybody's going all electric, California has said that by 2035, their plans are, is to offer only new electric vehicles being sold, but, uh, not sure, not sure if that's going to actually get passed and, and get turned into law at this point. John, what about from your standpoint, uh, any thoughts about the future of mobility and where does electric intersect with that? I mean, have you spent a lot of time behind the wheel of electric vehicles to start with? Only just a couple. And I actually really did like the driving experience. Um, but I'm a bit skeptical of the, like you and I've talked about battery life, um, uh, charging the battery, the inconvenience of that, range anxiety, I think is the overall term for that. So I'm going to be keeping my eyes on that. It would be doubtful that I would personally ever consider uh, buying and owning an electric car, but you know, you never know. What about you? What's, what's kind of your summary? Well, it seems like from a technology standpoint, what works very well is when hybrid is paired with a combustion engine that, you know, the Toyota Prius now has been on the road for, I think, over 10 years. And it seems like that pairing works very well to increase mileage. But I agree with you about the full plug-in. I just don't think the majority of consumers are eager to adopt that. It still seems that there's uh, massive infrastructure hurdles to overcome uh, in terms of where do you plug it in? And then also not only where you plug it in, but how long you plug it in. I mean, it still seems like even some of the fastest chargers out there still require almost upwards of 30 to 40 minutes, you know, for you got to hang around for you to charge your car. So, but also like you, I really do like driving them. It's a very unique yeah. experience. It's, it's very fun. Um, and it's something that, like you said, we'll just have to kind of keep our eyes on. Now, it's, if there's something that remains true, it's that in the marketplace, people still like muscle cars which is good news for uh, performance enthusiasts like you and I. And a little bit of news here from uh, our, the folks over 
at Dodge, they have announced that for the 2021 Challenger, they're going to be offering the Gold Rush paint color that was first introduced on the 50th anniversary limited edition Challenger. That's a car, John, that you and I saw at the this year's Chicago Auto Show. Really looks stunning, especially with that paint. It was super glossy. It's got a great look, and it makes sense that now consumers want that on the rest of the Challenger lineup, so you will be able to get it on Challenger TA, TA392, and the SRT Hellcat and Hellcat Red Eye. You know, last year when we first saw it, Matt, uh, both of us, I think, were literally drawn to the display. It was kind of in the middle of their display. And in a world where we've got cars, as we say all the time, white and black and shades of gray, to see something in a vibrant color is really refreshing. And I'm very, very glad that the folks at FCA Dodge decided to take this color that presumably was going to be just a one-year-only color and extended for those that didn't have a chance to get it in uh, 2020. And I can't wait to see the first one out on the road. I haven't seen one yet. but I haven't either. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm looking forward to it because the cars did look so good underneath the lights of the convention center. So I can only imagine when you get them out in the sun that that's probably where they can truly shine. Now, John, turning our attention to Ford, the brand has announced that for 2021, they will be offering the trimmer off-road package on the F-150. If that sounds familiar, it should, because back in September, they rolled it out onto the Ranger. Now it's being applied to the F-150. The package brings upgrades like a upgrade suspension, 33-inch all-terrain tires on matte finish, 18-inch wheels, a Raptor-style bash plate, as well as locking front and rear differentials. You'll be able to identify the package through cues like a unique grille with a blacked-out Ford oval. And then there's also highlights of the signature trimmer color, which is active orange, used in different uh, components like the two front recovery hooks. Inside the cabin, there will be unique seat trim and special stitching, as well as an auxiliary switch power pack mounted in the overhead console, giving you additional switches to connect all kinds of different gear to it. So definitely uh, geared for the off-road enthusiast. No word on pricing, but Ford has announced that it will be available next summer. Well, I think we're going to see continued uh, packages, distinctive packages, as the truck market is already white hot, as it continues to get stronger. They're going to, all the manufacturers are going to want to make sure that every single market segment sliver uh, has has representation. So we can kind of call this as a, maybe a poor man's Raptor. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could, John. I think this could be a poor man's Raptor. But I think more importantly, you hit the nail on the head in that a move like this clearly shows that Ford wants to have a truck for every single buyer. I'm reminded last week we talked about the hybrid powertrain coming out on F-150 and some of the technology. And so clearly Ford wants to make sure that whether you're, you know, focus more on efficiency or in this case, maybe focus on having more of that off-road fun. They want to have a truck for every single buyer. Hey, Matt, just in case uh, listeners are out there wondering uh, what might be a great last-minute Christmas gift for either for themselves or a uh, car person that they know. Uh, selfless plug to you, Matt Avery, uh, our our host, uh, well-known to folks out there, I think, as being the author of the definitive book on the Chevy Copo program, book called Copo. That book is available. Uh, autographed copies, $47, right from Matt. Uh, you can visit copothebook.com for information, and that $47 price includes shipping a pretty good deal matt <laughs> well thanks john and yeah i wanted to be something that wasn't impossible for enthusiasts to get hold of and i do appreciate the kind words I, I know you've read the book several times and you're a big fan 
Copo cars are so much fun. Essentially, race cars that were built through uh, backdoor factory channels that Chevrolet had, all made possible through the work of a cast of characters that include names like Vince Piggins and Don Yanko, Dick Harrell and Fred Gibb. And you add it all up and it's just such a unique slice of American muscle car history. And I've just really enjoyed looking into them. Um, even though the book is out, uh, my research is ongoing. I've continued to dive deeper into the Copo program. And my interest is not unique, John. The overall interest is continuing to expand. Uh, I see that not only with the sales of my book, but just as I look out into the collector car space, there is a growing interest in these cars, especially as people are understanding how rare they are. Uh, and if you look at Mecham auctions, Copo cars continue to be a dominant force. They bring top dollar and I think that's only going to continue as people really understand how rare these cars are. As you mentioned, uh, with it being the holiday season, I'll throw this out there. Another gift that is perfect for Copo enthusiasts is a limited edition run of 164 scale die cast cars just released by Johnny Lightning celebrating 12 different real deal Copo cars that I was able to see, experience, and document firsthand. They look really sharp and they're a wonderful companion to the book. And you can find them at major retailers like Hobby Lobby and Meyer. Now, John, I know with the end of the month fast approaching, you are getting very excited because you have a very special present headed your way. Well, as we've talked about from time to time, uh, it's getting close, Matt, for me to get my all-new 2020 mid-agency 8 Corvette. Uh, Katie Osborne and I attended the reveal all the way back in July of 2019. Seems a lifetime ago. I was smitten with the car right from that time. A month later, in August of 19, I actually ordered a C8, and I'm very proud to announce that uh, my VIN is 18350, and it was actually built and assembled on Friday December the 3rd down at the Bowling Green assembly plant and waiting to hear from my dealer that it has been delivered. Needless to say, it has been a long wait, but if it arrives before Christmas and I've got fingers crossed anticipating, uh, it's going to be a real high point in this year of 2020. Mecham Auctions is proud to bring you On the Move with Matt Avery and John Craman. For more on the world of collector cars, head over to Mecham.com. Now let's get back to the show. Hey, Matt, I am so happy and so excited to uh, let everybody know that we have Rachel DeBarros joining us, known as the Gearhead Diva. I call her the ultimate overachiever, and I mean that in a good way. She's a pilot. She's a musician. She's a fabricator, TV personality, best known for her work on All Girls Garage. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here talking to you guys about cars. I mean, it's the best thing to talk about, right? Nothing else. <laughs> cars, indeed. So tell tell Matt and I, bring us all in. Where, where did you first get an idea that cars were going to be a big part of your life? And how did you develop your chops? Well, it kind of came out of nowhere, like it does for some of us. And speaking specifically about women getting involved in cars and discovering a passion for it, it all started with a lame dad. Yeah, ultra lame. And let me explain uh, this lameness to you. In high school, when a lot of my friends were getting their new cars and I was so like, oh, which one am I going to get? You start to get excited. You're about to turn 16. 
Well, no, it turns out I wasn't getting a new car. I was going to drive the family car. And let me tell you, this family car was so amazing, so amazing that I doubt Meekum will ever see it roll through the auction floor. (laughs) And this was a mid-80s Oldsmobile Forenza. And this car just couldn't decide whether it was brown or purple. And needless to say, the boys were calling Not at all. Like, you know, I could just squeak in and out of school and nobody would know. But one of the things that my dad stressed, and at the time we were like, oh, this is so like, I don't get why we're doing this. You know, when you're little, you always, or high school age, you always think that you're two steps ahead of your parents and you don't kind of get what they're trying to to teach you until much later, you have a much stronger appreciation and driving the family car, you don't, you know, it's a privilege. And so you have to participate in the family maintenance, uh, in maintaining the car. And so we learned how to change the oil, how to swap a tire, how to uh, do our own brake jobs. And my dad wasn't any mechanic. He was just a DIYer. And that started to instill in me that you don't have to have all the knowledge, just start to unbolt stuff and then bolt it the way you, you bolted it back together again. And what I found was that I really really like doing this stuff. I was always into science and engineering, but I really, really enjoyed cars. And I would have never uh, known that had my dad not been so lame. (laughs) (laughs) And so I enjoyed uh, maintaining this car all the way through high school. And then in college, although I didn't pursue cars professionally, like being a mechanic or anything like that, it was a good way to make some side money, you know, doing oil changes for class, uh, you know, upperclassmen. You just drive up to their house or their dorm and do it right on the spot there. So it was a good little, you know, side business. I had to make some modifications. Uh, I remember when I got to college, I put up all these pink flyers saying, you know, Rachel. And I had my phone number, my dorm room number, and that I would do these services for 15 It was between 10 and 15 bucks. So I do admit my marketing and business sense wasn't quite there yet because, uh, yeah, I think you'll end up upside down running a business like that. But what I found at that time is the phone rang not at all. And I would sit by my dorm room phone and challenge myself not to look at the phone because that's when it's not going to ring when you're like, you know, staring at it. Uh, And so I I decided something different, a little experiment, if you will. And I changed the name to Jimmy on the flyers. Well, lo and behold, the phone started to ring and I started to go on these jobs. Well, obviously, I don't look like no Jimmy. Uh, And so uh, I would always say, oh, Jimmy, he does this all the time. He double booked himself, but I'm on, on these jobs with him all the time. And maybe about three, four people figured out that there was never any Jimmy. So although I didn't pursue cars professionally at this time, they were always part of my life, you know, and then you go on to college where I pursued marketing, actually. Uh, And then cars kind of fell by the wayside uh, until I just missed them. I missed working on cars. And that's where I got my 1973 Cuda and started to restore it myself. You know, and again, at that time, was I a real mechanic? Was I a real car restoration expert? Uh, No, but I did what we did in childhood, which, you know, just start unbolting things, start sanding things and hitting the forums. And what I found was everybody's in the same boat and learning off of each other. And I just gained so many skills by talking to people from all over the nation via these rooms and and, um, 
chat rooms and forums posting pictures back and forth of our nightmare stories and nightmare restoration stories. I had some good uh, chicken wire and newspaper uh, repair jobs on my CUDA, which then I had to learn to fix. So it's always been uh, a part of my life. Cars, you know, whether professionally, then later, that's when it turned uh, professional. And being with a marketing background, I remember when YouTube started to become big and looking at YouTube and saying, wow, this is going to be the next big thing, video for marketing. So I tried to pitch this to my clients, like, you guys, you really should be doing video. Well, nobody was buying it. I didn't have any sample work, you know, because I couldn't get any clients to give me the sample work. So I started to shoot videos on my own in my driveway, doing brake repair jobs, oil changes, and using the products that you find at like an advanced auto or whatever big box store as pretend products, you know, as if I were pitching those products. Well, the YouTube channel where I was posting this at that at that time called Gearhead Diva, which is funny because I'm anything but, uh, started to uh, pick up steam and people love just the back to basics type of information that I was giving. And then this moved on to restoring my CUDA via YouTube. And people liked the authenticity that, you know, not all the answers are there, but we discover things together. And lo and behold, well, that's where the production company started calling. And the very first companies that called wanted to do things like, hey, Rachel, we have a great idea. We're going to put you in disguise, and then we're going to take you to a repair shop, and they're going to rip you off, right? And then you're going to rip off your disguise, and then it's going to be a showdown, wrench throwing, yelling, you know, all this craziness. And I said, listen. I didn't set out in life to be on TV. And if I'm going to be on TV, it's certainly not going to be in this respect where I love cars. I love my local um, mechanic shops, body shops. We all support each other. And the last thing I'm going to do is go out and paint a picture as if, you know, parts of the automotive industry are just sour, which is so not true. I learned most of my stuff from auto repair shops. If you take your car in, especially when I was a teenager, so many of the mechanics there and the service guys love to explain things. And I think people just have this assumption that they don't have time for you or they don't care. It's very different when you ask a question about your car, or you want to learn, you know, oftentimes it lights them up and they're like, oh, well, let me explain how this works. Uh, so I think that's an assumption that I didn't want to perpetuate, you know, that all repair shops were, were bad. So I kept turning down these, these things. And until one production company came a knock in. And this was for All Girls Garage. And this was a time where Jessie Combs was leaving to pursue her uh, racing career. Uh, and so they needed a new girl. And, well, I've never auditioned for TV. This is crazy. I was, you know, I asked a whole bunch of questions. Am I going to have to read a script? Am I going to have to memorize things? And they were like, no, just come down. We'll give you a car to work on. And you just kind of talk what you know, you know, and then they uh, film it. And that's what I discovered about the show. I obviously auditioned. I didn't hear anything for a long time. So I thought, oh, man, I must have bombed. And my audition car was a 1970 Chevelle where I had to do a brake booster swap and change out uh, the brake lines and give tips and advice as, uh, you know, as I went along. Uh, But lo and behold, though, I was uh, selected for the show and I did it for four years and it was a blast. The girls were a blast. 
uh, what I loved most about it was I was able to work on a variety of different cars every week. And it's something that I wouldn't have never been able to do on our own. Obviously, we have our stable of cars that we love, but, you know, to be able to rotate and do 13 different cars uh, for an episode was a dream come true because you learn bits and pieces and history about each of the cars as you go along. And what I found is that nothing is scripted. You just kind of talk naturally about the things that you know, and, you know, you learn along the way. And it was a great, great experience. I loved it. So you did that for four years. Now, Phyllis, what have you been up to since you left the show? Well, since I left the show, uh, before I had gotten on All Girls Garage, uh, being part of marketing and writing shows, even before then, I was already writing shows and working with production companies behind the camera. So the thing with All Girls that gave me an opportunity that I hadn't had before was to be in front of the camera. And it gave me a much more broader uh, understanding of what hosts under the pressures that they're under and being able to work with them and in a better way. And so since I've been away from All Girls Garage, I've continued uh, the production. So I was able to pick back up the behind the camera uh, type of productions. So we have two to three shows in development, which of course got delayed by the whole, you know, pandemic and and all that, but they're going to pick back up again uh, as soon as the new year hits sometime in the early spring. So these shows will air on a variety of different uh, digital networks. But in the meantime, because we've all been holed up at home uh, with the pandemic, I actually started getting back into other projects that I love, like woodworking, electronics projects, uh, cars, of course, as well. It's not like we're going to put that aside uh, on my Gearhead Diva YouTube channel. And so I started to live stream on a weekly basis where people can come in, ask me questions live. We build something together and they can also give suggestions and say, hey, let's do a project like that. So midstream will change the direction of the project. So it's been a real blast. They love seeing their suggestions actually being incorporated into the project. So imagine watching a car show where you can actually say, I don't like those wheels. I want those other wheels. And it happens, you know. So uh, it's nice to uh, do these cool crowd building type of shows. And it's a platform that now we are incorporating into a car show, which uh, is going to air on a digital network. Obviously, if you have social media voting and social voting, it's tough to do on a regular TV network, which is uh, taped months and months in advance. Uh, So it'll be kind of a new interactive way of looking at car shows. So I'm super excited for that. Rachel, you and I met uh, a couple of years ago uh, at SEMA and then had a chance also to reconnect at Mecham Kissimmee. Uh, and I believe that was your first time ever to a Mecham auction. What was your impression with the dynamics of attending such a big auction as Mecham Kissimmee? Oh my gosh. I didn't know what to expect when I went to Kissimmee. I I remember driving in, parking the car and the sheer volume. I remember I went into the first building and I thought, wow, there's like a good uh, selection of cars here. But then there's another building and another and another. And just to be able to purchase a car there, I'm like, man, you have to come like a week before just to be able to examine all the cars. It was like Candyland. And not just some really cool rare collectibles, but movie cars too. Uh, there was the um, car uh, from, 
I believe it was a family vacation one time you guys had, and it was just the greatest experience. I couldn't pull myself off of the auction floor, and the cars kept rolling by, and it was very... I had to really restrain myself because I've given myself a rule. I got to, I got to finish the cars I got right now before buying another one. You know, you just keep collecting and collecting. And then the other cars that you have, they give this new car the side eye and they're like, listen, what's this new one doing here? Like I still need a new brake booster <laughs> and you're bringing in this, this new person here. Yeah. So it's like high school in the garage and there's a squabble between the older cool kids and like the new freshmen's coming in. <laughs> hey, Rachel, let's dive into those. So what all is in your current collection? So, oh dear. Well, I'm predominantly a Mopar gal, mm. although I, I love, I love all cars, you know, but I found myself gravitating towards the Mopars. So the first car I got was a 1973 Cuda. And I'm still doing metalwork fabrication. The very first thing I did to that car was put in the floors. And this was kind of the first opportunity to start learning welding. Uh, So I practiced a lot and got that done. And now I'm repairing the roof. Next is a non-Mopar car, a 1951 uh, Ford. F1. And what I liked it about it is that it's uh, the Sanford and Sons Ford style. And I remember loving that mm-hmm. series. And I always remembered the truck from there. So uh, I'm working on that. That has a 429 in it. Cool. So very nice upgrade. Very nice. Whereas my Cuda was coded for a 340, but the previous owner swapped in a 318. Uh, but that didn't matter because I figured, you know what? I think I'm going to do some kind of Hemi swap. I'm still, you know, getting that in my mind. Uh, that's probably the direction I'll go with that. And then I have just some of the the newer uh, cars. Like I have a uh, 2008 Hummer. And believe you me, it's not like I didn't eye up the new Hummers coming out. And like the crab walk that they can do, I was like, oh, and my Hummer's looking at me like, don't you even. I am the OG. You do not replace me <laughs> with, uh, you know, the, the new one. So I do have some kind of uh, internal struggle going on with my cars here. Uh, and then uh, a Dodge SRT. Of course, Mopar, and it's been a lot of fun. We put a striping kit on it. I did have a Chevy, which we completely plastic from head to toe. And boy, did I have my reservations about that. You know, people look at a plastic part, they're like, "Mm, you know, go paint it. Uh, But I actually had a lot of fun doing it. And the best part was I drove it around for a season, loved it pulled it off and then did another color, did a matte black. Uh, So it was kind of a car that you can customize, you know, for the season. Uh, So that was fun, but my stable was getting too big. You know, you have a lot of, uh, you know, tenants not paying rent. So I had to get rid of some of the tenants of the garage. You only have so much space. Uh, But those have been kind of uh, in my stable and I hope to get my old gals running and on the road. Uh, for the upcoming summer. You've really made a name for yourself, Rachel, as being someone who's not afraid to roll up her sleeves, jump into a project, tear something apart, figure out how it works, and then put it back together. It's really a passion for you, and that's evident. From your perspective out there in the industry, are you seeing more automotive enthusiasts that share that same love, that they want to work with their hands? I think so. I think we hear a lot of myths myths about cars becoming too difficult to work on and and it's all plastic now and computers and and all that. 
Um, it is and isn't true. I think with the advent of the technology in our lives and the electronics, a lot more people are getting into that and children are now coding in school. And so these interfaces are becoming more, you know, more familiar. And so I think as cars evolve, I think you're going to get this renewed interest uh, in the technology of the cars. And of course, the old uh, combustion is always, come on, you, you can't deny that rumble and, you know, those big exhausts when you step on it, you can like really hear it. That's the first thing I do to my cars is put in a cap back exhaust, number one, and a good tune. Uh, you get so much more enjoyment. But I really see this industry growing. And one of the things that I have done is that the first realization I had was that people that love cars and work on cars love to do other things like work on projects around their house. In general, they love to work with their hands and apply ideas in their heads and carry it out through your hands. Uh, and so making content that will perhaps bring someone in through the woodworking avenue does lead to cars because it's a lot of the same problem solving and people who love to problem solve are going to love working on cars. So I think that a lot of people think the technology is a barrier. I think it's a great entry point uh, for people to get into cars. Rachel, I really think that you uh, have developed yourself into inspiration for so many people. Your knowledge, your spirit, your enthusiasm is truly infectious. Uh, we're going to keep an eye on what you're up to in the upcoming year. And uh, Matt and I really like to thank you for coming on today so much. Thanks again. Oh, thank you guys. I had so much fun and it was awesome catching up. Don't adjust that dial. On the Move, we'll be right back. Our program is proudly presented by Meekum Auctions, the world's largest collector car auctions. Now back to Matt and John. Well, John, as we progress further into December, it is readily apparent that 2020 is winding down fast. But before we close out the books, we wanted to take some time for this segment to have what we're calling our Meekum Year in Review. And this is an opportunity where you and I sit back and we reflect on the past 12 months and discuss the highlights in sales success that Meekum Auctions has experienced. And what a year to be doing this in. Uh, by all accounts, one of the, if not the most challenging year uh, that Meekum Auctions has ever faced, as well as, of course, the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Just a lot of uh, businesses were struggling with how to carry on uh, given the pandemic, but uh, Meekum Auctions was able to to press forward and hold 13 major live and safe events around the country. And that was all made possible thanks to the leadership and direction from Meekum's executive team. For those who are unaware, that includes the Meekum family, Dana and Patty and their boys, Frank, Harry, Dan, and Ben. It also involves company CEO Dave Majors, as well as Sam Murdaugh, VP of Marketing and Presentation. And it also includes Harold Gertis, VP of Operations. And John and I can both attest that that entire crew has been working tirelessly uh, with no end in sight as they are already planning well into 2021, uh, but just really working behind the scenes to make sure that Meekum Auctions can carry on uh, what we do best and to do it in a safe way for everyone that is there. And really, John, as we are pausing to look back at this uh, year, it seems like we're both kind of collectively catching our breath. It's just been a whirlwind of activity. 
when you look at the results and you add them all up, they are really nothing short of astounding. Well, and I think everybody's going to be very surprised when we get to the end of the summary today, Matt, here in just a few moments. I think everybody listening is going to be very surprised and very shocked and very pleased at where these final numbers came in at. All right, John, so let's rewind the clock. Let's go back to January. Mecham Auctions, as is tradition, kicked off the new year by hosting the world's largest collector car auction in Kissimmee, Florida, held January 2nd through the 12th. Run us down. What were the highlights? Well, this is obviously pre-pandemic, Matt, and that's important to note as we as we kind of take a journey back in time, uh, back to the good times of January. Once again, the world's largest collector car auction was a massive success. Let me give you some data. 2,140 cars sold. Income generated about $105 million in the sale of collector vehicles. And, of course, the number one seller, the shockwave heard around the world, the 1968 Bullet Mustang selling for $3.74 million, establishing a new mark for the highest-selling Ford Mustang. But as we know, in typical Mecham tradition, as we'll find out in a few moments, that didn't hang in their number one no. for too long. Now, John, let's talk about when that car crossed the block. You and I were both there to witness it firsthand and the energy, the excitement, the electricity in that arena was uh, tangible, it seemed like. Can you think of another time in auction history when there was so much focus on one vehicle? No, no, that was it. The absolute number one Mika moment uh, was when that bullet Mustang hammered so much emotion, that car being long-term ownership for so long, the family being there, and everything just coming together. It brought right at the kind of dollar number, Matt, that we we're all expecting. You and I were out at SEMA with the car on display there, showing it off to a lot of the folks, and uh, we were predicting, and we're, I I was anyway predicting about a four to five million dollar hammer price and it brought just just slightly under that so i think everybody really happy with the way that turned out <laughs> yeah now john from florida the mecham auctions team headed next to las vegas uh, for the big motorcycle auction held january 21st through the 26th what was going on there another big event matt 1540 motorcycles sold at the world's largest vintage motorcycle auction incredible results there number one seller as you'd expect 1922 bruff superior brought a staggering 308 thousand dollars yikes <laughs> from there the Mecham auctions team headed to glendale arizona march 11th through the 14th marking the second time that uh, the team has held an event there yep and an event that we all look forward to it's a great time of the year out there that four-day auction netted 28.9 million dollars in sales matt 787 vehicles sold the number one seller a 2017 ford gt competition series at one million one hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, and then from there we picked up the summer schedule in June of seventeenth through the twentieth. Headed to Davenport for the first of two gone farming auctions. Yep, uh, tractors, trucks, signs, farm relics at a whopping ninety-five percent sell-through rate on that auction. Matt, they generated about five million in sales. Top seller at that event, 1938 Minnesota Moline, UDLX Comfort Tractor, 
$129,150. Wow. And then next up was the Eddie Vinoy Collection. That was held June 26th through the 30th down in Jefferson, North Carolina. John, what were the highlights there? Yeah, that was a on-site private museum sale, Matt. About 100 vehicles were there, but more than 3,000 road art items. It took five days, June 26th through the 30th, but a 100% sell-through rate. About $15 million was generated in sales there. Number one seller, that beautiful 1969 Dodge Daytona 440 Magnum Power, brought $231,000. From there, Meekum Auctions headed to Indianapolis for Dana Meekum's 33rd annual Indy Spring Classic, which was held July 10th through the 18th. Yep, that was moved from its traditional spot, Matt, in May, and... Maybe the biggest surprise of the whole season, the best ever in its 33 years history. That auction ran nine days. It generated $74 million in sales, 1,350 entries are sold. The number one seller, 1965 Shelby Mustang GT350R, one of two prototypes known as the Flying Mustang, driven by Ken Miles, setting an absolute new high bar for the sale of a Ford Mustang at auction. And you're not kidding, John. That is a high bar that it set selling for $3.85 million. Now, from there, the Meekum Auctions team headed to Kissimmee, Florida again for a summer special held August 27th through the 29th. Yeah, an add-on auction, Matt, uh, just due to venue availability and cancellations. We snuck a nice little solid three-day auction uh, there in August. 518 sold for a total of $18.6 million. Number one seller, once again, a Ford GT. This one from 2018. It was a white one, by the way, $935,000. Next up was uh, Meekum Auctions' eighth event. This one was held in Dallas, Texas, October 15th to the 17th. John, what were the highlights? Well, hope you like Ford GTs, Matt, because number one seller at Dallas was also a Ford GT. It was 2006. It brought $302,500, sell-through rate, 612 vehicles sold, and a strong $23.8 million in sales at that auction in Dallas. <laughs> well, next up was the Indy Fall Special taking place back in Indianapolis, October 29th through the 31st, uh, including Halloween, although there were no tricks, just treats in the form of more gray cars. Yep, 534 cars sold their mat, 85% sell-through rate, $13.4 million in sales. An exotic taking the number one spot of 2018, a Lamborghini Huracan at Trademark Lambo Orange, only 2,000 miles on it, brought 187,000. The top 10 was really strong at that auction, uh, the rest all being American Muscle at Corvettes. It took $100,000 or more to make that top 10 there. And then come November, the Meekum Auctions team was back in Las Vegas, this time for a car auction held November 13th and the 14th. Yeah, a big event there, Matt, because... 316 vehicles were sold, but $13 million in sales. That's an average price of about $42,000. I think that's the highest two-day auction that I can ever remember. Number one seller, 1967 Shelby GT500 Fastback, 200 and $53,000. And then as Thanksgiving approached, uh, the team was out to Kansas City for another auction held November 20th through the 21st. Yep, our late fall tradition, uh, Bartle Hall, great host there in Kansas City. Another very, very strong auction, $7 million in sales, number one seller, 2005, 
Ford GT, $264,000. Common theme with the GTs. From there, there was an overlapping event, this time with Gone Farming, the Mecham Tractor Division. They held their second auction of the year in Davenport, November 19th through the 21st. Yeah, and they had a really great auction there, Matt. In fact, they have some fancy footworkers required to transition from a live auction to a live online auction only hours from the auction start. But it didn't slow them down. 90% sell-through rate, $3.6 million in sales. Number one, a trend for these guys, by the way, 1958 Chevy, Napco Apache 32, 4x4 pickup truck. And wrapping up the year, John, our final event just took place recently in Houston, Texas, held December 3rd through the 5th. Could not have gone better, Matt. Uh, Moved all the way from April to this uh, date here uh, just a few weeks ago. Well over $13 in sales there, 85% sell-through rate, super strong there shocking number one seller at that auction, Matt, was lot number S81 is a 1941 Ford Restomod pickup, Rouse, supercharged, Coyote, show truck all the way. It brought $206,250. The reserve came off at around $100,000. It was that, first of all, number one, I mentioned the lot number, S81. Go to Mecham.com, look at it, look at the results. It's one of the best pickup trucks that we have ever had, and the bidders there went crazy over that. Any other highlights from that top 10 list, John? Um, just once again, a typical nice mix of American muscle and some exotics on there, but it was really all about that truck. And one of the trends that we took away from Houston is the continued interest uh, and the high percentage of high-quality stock, restored, resto-modded, pickup trucks, and early Ford Broncos in particular. So, John, as we kind of uh, close the books on the 2020 season, let's talk a little bit about the factors that really all came together to allow for the success. And like we've said, such a challenging years. Give us some insight. What helped make this possible? Well, yes, let's talk about that. But before we do that, let's see why we're having that conversation. Total dollar volume generated by Mecham Auctions in the 13 auctions this year. You ready for this? $334 million. 13 auctions. Three of them were done pre-pandemic, generated about $147 million. But the remaining auctions of the year brought in another $187 million, bringing us to that incredible total of $334 million. And maybe the most impressive part of all, Matt, in the past eight weeks, six auctions, 2,700 vehicles sold, 83% sell-through rate, $68 million alone. The enthusiasm, now the reasons why, the enthusiasm from consigners, bidders, has just been incredible. That has, I think, provided the motivation for the entire Mecham organization to continue to jump through these minefields and put all these events on. I'm just going to say it for the world to hear. There is no other auction company on the planet that could have planned and executed this type of just utterly incredible results. And if it sounds like I'm very proud or I'm uh, very cocky about uh, talking about these results, um, I am, but also I realize and understand that both you and I, we're just very smart, small parts of the big machine that makes Mecham work. And that's all the way from the upper level management we talked about earlier, all the way down to everybody that it takes uh, to execute these auctions right in down to the car pushers. Just an amazing year by any standard. 
Yeah, and like you said, I mean, it really was an all-hands-on-deck as a lot of these events were having changes being made to them in the days leading up to their taking place just to make sure that our team was doing everything possible, working with the local authorities to provide a safe environment uh, for us to hold an auction. Yeah, and that was a huge challenge, Matt. You know, these auctions were not done carelessly. Uh, There was a tremendous amount of safety protocol in effect from daily temperature checks to a lot of plexiglass, to mandatory masks and social distancing. And um, we just got on board with that. We made the decision, everybody at Mika made the decision that we would rather continue to do our auctions operating under these rules than to not to be doing business at all. And look how well it worked out this year. Now, John, also something else that we have noticed as we look back that has remained the same, and if not is growing, is the passion for collector cars. If 2020 has taught us anything, it is that people are choosing to spend their time with other things that maybe they weren't able to spend as much time with. One of those is classic cars. People are seeking out their dream machines that they've always wanted to own or drive, and they're showing up at auction to acquire those purchases. Couldn't have said it better myself, Matt. That really, more than anything else, that has been the biggest single Uh, driving factor on the success of these auctions has been the continued increasing demand for collector cars of all types. What does that tell us about this year? Interest remains as good as ever. What does it tell us about next year? No reason to think at all kicking off Kissimmee here in January, that anything is going to change. So I'm going to recommend everybody that if you're thinking about consigning a car, you're thinking about coming to the auction and buying the car, do not hesitate. Mecham Auctions is putting on safe and very successful events that have paid off big time for everybody involved. Now, we have been talking about 2020, John, and we're so excited that we made it through and with such results. We're going to be looking ahead in next week's show to what's in store for Mecham in 2021. Yeah, it's going to be the Mecham staff right now hard at work on putting finishing touches on a full 2021 schedule. And you and I will sit down and go through that auction by auction on the next podcast. You've been listening to Meekham Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. For more information, visit Meekham.com. And join us again next time as we take you inside the world of muscle and collector cars and more.